Well, no matter where you're joining us, maybe at one of our campuses or online, we are glad uh, that you are here today. It is officially one week till Christmas Eve. So if you don't have your shopping done by now, you're going to be going to a store. So uh, I don't know if I would trust the delivery process at this stage of the game. But hey, let me say this. I know you just got a chance to hear about our Christmas Eve service times. So this is me asking begging, pleading, if you need me to get down on my knees, I'll do that as well, to attend one of our off-Sunday Christmas Eve services. And here's why, because we always have an influx from the community of people who come in, maybe uh, they're giving church a a shot for the first time, maybe they're saying yes to an invite, and they, we want them to have a seat. And so one of the things that I always say, and I pray uh, this every Sunday, is every seat represents a soul. And so we want to be able to reach as many people with the gospel as we can. But obviously, we just want you here. So if Sunday works, uh, is the only service that works, then we definitely uh, want to see uh, you there. But we are wrapping up a series called Love Came Down. Uh, Pastor Jason will be leading us in our Christmas Eve services. Uh, But this has been a great, great series. And we just love Christmas, right? Jason says this all the time. When you're Bethlehem Church, you better do Christmas right. So I just think... We do it really, really well. But my family kind of has some traditions, probably like your family, is we started sitting down in the evenings, and we started watching Christmas movies, some of our favorite Christmas movies. So each person gets to pick. Now, here's the problem, all right? My family will tell you, real quickly, if you say, what is Matt's favorite Christmas movie, you know what they're going to say immediately? Die Hard, right? So Die Hard, favorite I got a lie. There you go. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, it's, I love Die Hard. It is a Christmas movie, and, uh, but that's, that's not the one I'm thinking about. It's a Christmas story. Anybody Christmas story fans, you either love it or hate it. Okay, there's probably a few of you. All right, probably going to be some booze. All right, I get it. None of my family, like when I say we're going to watch the Christmas story, like my family's like, no, we're not watching this the dumbest movie ever. I love everything about it. Like I love Ralphie. I love the whole setting. I love the storyline, I love the narration, all of it. And, you know, there's a moment, obviously, it's kind of in the climax, when, when Ralphie is coming down the stairs on Christmas morning, and he's praying and hoping that what he wants is underneath that tree, which is a Red Ryder BB gun. That's what he wants. That's all he wants. That's all he can think about. He's obsessing over it. And if you know the story, uh, you know what happens next. Kind of a little, uh, it's kind of ironic, but I mean, there's a little irony to it, and if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it, okay, but it came out 40 years ago, so if you haven't watched it by now, so it's probably, you don't really care. He comes down, and he opens up all the presents, and it's not under the tree, and you could tell he's disappointed. In fact, there's a moment where his dad's sitting on the couch, and he says, Ralphie, did you, did you have a good Christmas? He's like, yeah. Did you get everything you wanted? Uh, yeah. But you know there's a disappointment because the present he was hoping for wasn't under the tree. And then his dad says, you know what? I think I I see another present. And tucked behind the piano was what he longed for, Red Ryder BB gun. Now here's what that makes me think of. That makes me think of the 400 years between Malachi and the Gospels. That makes me think of that longing for the present that you, you know, so desire that doesn't come the way you think it should come. And what I love about the real Christmas story, the one we celebrate, is that there's this 400 years of waiting and hoping 
that, that Christ will come, that the Messiah will come and deliver his people. And they're waiting, and there's disappointment, but all of a sudden, Jesus comes, the gift comes down in the most unexpected way. Love comes down in the form of a baby, and his name is Jesus. And he's, he's born into to the setting that, that really, when you look at it, is confounding the way Jesus chose to come. Nobody saw it coming, right? Nobody saw it coming. But it proves to us that love, that God's love for us never ends. Never ends. That he is in pursuit of us. And we've been looking through the backdrop of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul's definition of love. And we're going to finish it up. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can turn there or your Bethlehem Church apps. Or we're going to just throw, um, throw it up on the screen right here so you can kind of follow along. But here we go. Picking up with verse 8. Here's what Paul says. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And he goes on, for we now, for we know, excuse me, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now let me stop right here because this is important. Paul is using some language that we don't often talk about here at Bethlehem Church. He outlines three spiritual gifts. Now, I, I don't know what your theology is around spiritual gifts that Paul's talking about here. I, I don't know if you're a sensationist or you're a continuationist or if you're, uh, I don't know what he's talking about, ist, okay? I, like, I don't know what your theology is, but here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth and saying to us that spiritual gifts are secondary and love is primary. Spiritual gifts are secondary, love is primary. He's saying spiritual gifts will one day end, but guess what will never end? Love. Love never ends. And so that's what he's outlining here. Because the, the church in Corinth, they begin, they begin to brag about their spiritual gifts and making it about themselves. That was leading to pride. And he says, no, no, you're completely missing the point. The point is love. And that's what he's doing here. And then he picks up. Verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up video games. Or, sorry, hold on, it says childish ways, so my bad, my bad there. Nothing wrong with video games, just having some fun there. I gave up childish ways, and then he goes on, he says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. We're going to come back to this. So powerful. Even as I have been fully known. And then he wraps it all up with this. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is what, church? Love. Love is the greatest gift. And the greatest gift came to us. We celebrated at Christmas. And it's so confounding again because... Throughout the Old Testament, because of our sin, we couldn't, God was virtually inapproachable. You couldn't get to God, and yet God knew this, so he came to us. That he came on a rescue mission to us. Why? Because love never ends. Love never fails. But what's also confounding about the Christmas story, I think, is not just how Jesus came, but who he came to. 
Because when you think about the characters in the, in the nativity scene or the Christmas story, the ones we, we put out in our front yard or maybe put on your, you know, your tables and you got to your nativity scenes. Some of you are like my wife, you got multiple nativity scenes you've collected over the years and you put all these characters around. But what's, what's so confounding to me is not just how he came, but who he came to. And I think we can learn something about Christ's love based on who he came to. Because if you think about our world, the culture we live in, the, the world we live in values reputation. It values wealth. It values power. It values class. But the people that Jesus came to, how he came and who he came to, turn that upside down. And it shows us something about Christ's love, not only to us, but I think how we are called to love others. So what I want to do just for the next few minutes is I want to walk around our nativity scenes. And I want to look at a few of the characters. And I want you to see how, how confounding it is that God used these people. That when you think about these people, they were, they were unlikely candidates, if you would, to be a part of the Christmas story. So let's, let's just start with the first and probably most obvious, okay? And that is these two right here, Mary and Joseph. Now Mary and Joseph are two of the most like, unexpected, unlikely candidates to be a part of this story. Because they were the parents, the earthly parents of the Messiah that created the universe. And what makes that to me, first of all, so unlikely is that they were teenagers, I mean, anybody have teenagers, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm just trying to get my teenagers to do their homework, like maybe put their dishes up, maybe make their bed, like just like do the little things, put out the trash, much, much less to be parents, right, to the Messiah. It, but that's who they were. Now, teenagers then obviously carried a much more weight and responsibility in society. So if you're watching this or you're listening to this and you're like, man, I'm a teenager, I got it rough. Man, it's so tough around my house. Like, I, my parents make me do all this stuff. It's just so hard. I got to go to school. You know, it's like, hey, listen, listen. You, you, you got it easy. It could be a lot worse, right? Teenagers in, in early biblical times, ancient times, carried way more weight. So they were teenagers. Not, not only that, listen, you have Mary, and Mary's from a place called Nazareth. And you say, why is that a big deal? Well, here's what it says in 1 John chapter, four, uh, uh, John chapter 1, verse 46. It says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You might insert the word winder there. Can anything good, right, come out of winder, Georgia? Heck yeah, it can, right? Yeah, it can. There's a lot of good come out of winder. Can anything good come out of Winder? Can anything good come out of that? You can insert your, like for me, it's Houghton, Louisiana. Like if you were to know, like you don't know anybody else from Houghton except this guy right here probably. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So you got teenagers. Like they, they, they were people, they also, Mary and Joseph, you go back to them. What's interesting about them, and I think this is fascinating, is that they, they were Two teenagers that didn't meet at school. It wasn't like Joseph saw Mary from a distance and were like, man, I want to ask her out. Well, ask her to prom, like see if she says yes. She did. They fell in love. It's just a beautiful story. Going to make a Hallmark Christmas movie about it. You know, like that's not it. They, 
they were arranged to be married. So in first century Palestine, guess what? Marriages were arranged. So two families got together and said, guess what? This is who you're going to be marry. I think that's a great idea today. So um, I think we should go back to that, having a daughter. But that's neither here nor there. I'm not sure anybody would pick my sons, but uh, my daughter for sure, you know. But it was an arranged marriage. That's tough, right? They were teenagers. And Scripture says that they were in the middle of a betrothal period. In other words, they were, they were what we would call maybe engaged. So they were in the midst of this betrothal period when Mary becomes pregnant, that the Holy Spirit overshadows her. The Virgin Mary, she becomes pregnant with the Son of God. Now that's a hard conversation to have, right, with the person you're engaged to. That's tough. That's why the angel had to come, God had to come to Mary, but also to Joseph. But how do you explain that to everybody else? Like, how, how do you do that? In fact, here's how serious that was. When a woman became pregnant during the betrothal period, it was considered adultery. The punishment for that was death by stoning. So Joseph had the right to have her put to death publicly. And you know what that would have done for him? Cleared his name. It cleared his name in the community. But that's not what happened. You also see that in their genealogy, like we don't know anything about their parents per se. Like we don't know if they were, they were really prominent people. Probably were not. Now their lineage, they have a prominent lineage. You know, Scripture says that they were born into, to the, Jesus was born into to the Davidic line. So you can trace Mary's lineage through Luke and you can see the lineage from David you can see the lineage of Joseph through the Gospel of Matthew. There's a lot of importance to that. We can't unpack all of it, but that, that was important because, listen, genealogy was important. Genealogy was kind of like the, the LinkedIn of ancient times. Like your family tree mattered. It was kind of like your resume. So if you've got a resume, you've ever made a resume, like you know, like on a resume you put all your accomplishments all the reason wh reasons why you would be qualified, that you would be a good candidate. You know what you don't put on the resume? All of your mistakes. Like you're not putting the, like let me tell you this great time, I blew it, right? Like that, 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 you don't put that out, you, you leave that stuff out. Well, the same thing would happen actually with genealogies. That there are some family trees, you know what they would do? They would cut out the crazy uncle. They would just white him out. Take him out like we're not even claiming him, like we're getting him off. Like we don't want him associated with our name. In fact, you, you see even in history tells us that Herod the Great, that he wanted his name to carry a level of prominence. So you know what he did? He began to take out some of the people in his genealogy that would reflect poorly on his name. Because your name was who you were. It was important. So when you look at Mary and Joseph, it's not like people looked at them and said, man, they, man, they got a name. That, if the Son of God is going to come through two people, it's going to be Mary and Joseph. That was not the case. It was not, that was not the case for Mary and Joseph. And you think about the weight that they carried as teenagers in society, but also Mary being pregnant with the Son of God. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. Here's what he says. He says, today as I read the accounts of Jesus' birth, I tremble to think of the fate of the world resting on the responses 
of two rural teenagers. What thoughts, what weight, especially Mary, right, must have carried. If you think about the weight that these teenagers carried, if you were going to plan a rescue mission, if the, the literal fate of the world was in the balance, Joseph and Mary would have been two unlikely candidates. And yet God chose them. And yet God used them. But let, let's work our way again out around the nativity. How about these guys right here, the shepherds? The shepherds. Maybe you played a shepherd in a, in a pageant when you were a young kid or a play. Dressed up in a bathrobe, right? Put a belt around your head. That was me, right? Had a cane. Proud, man. You got the, you got the shepherd part like you were, you were doing something, right? But if you look at the shepherds in early times, they weren't educated people. They weren't people of prominence. They weren't, they weren't schooled. Right? They didn't have a high level of education. They didn't carry any social power, any position. In fact, most likely the shepherds that the angel came to were probably not even tending their own sheep. Because oftentimes they were hired hands that were tending to some wealthy man's sheep on their land. So they didn't have any social status, probably didn't have any economic status. That was the shepherds. You know, we would kind of refer to them maybe today as like blue collar, maybe, maybe like roughnecks, man. They were just, the History and Discovery Channel would do like a, like a TV show, like a reality show on these guys. Follow them. Why? Because, I mean, it, it wasn't that they were interesting, but their occupation may have been interesting. And not only that, they, they tended sheep outside of the city in fields. But you know who were also outside of the city? People who were banished from the city. People who were not allowed to live in society were banished to the outskirts where the shepherds were. They were second class. They weren't top shelf. They weren't the head of the class. And yet, think about it. They were the first people that got the message from the angel that the Messiah had been born. You think, what does that show us about God's love for us? That God goes to the lowly shepherds first. And here's the other thing that I, I've never really thought about before, but I, I think it's fascinating. Is that when Jesus, or when Jesus' birth, when, when he was born, and the, and the angel came to the shepherds and announced that. You think about the shepherds, they heard directly from the angel. Now, if you have a supernatural encounter with an angel, like, that's something that's going to stick with you. Like, if an angel showed up after you were scared to death... And the angel calmed you down and said, I have a message for you. you. You would say that message is important. Why? Because of the messenger. So the angel came to the shepherds and told them that the Messiah had been born. But guess where everybody else heard it from? The shepherds. They carried the message. You know what they didn't have? Prominence. You would have looked at a shepherd and they would say, hey, I've got news. The Messiah has been born. And you're like, well, you're just a shepherd. Like, it wasn't like they carried any weight in their name or occupation. And yet, that's who God used. But over and over throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, what do you see? You see God use people like the shepherds, ordinary people, people whose name didn't carry any weight. In fact, we see even in the Old Testament that God spoke through a donkey. And I don't know about you, but I think if God can speak through one donkey, he can speak through another donkey, right? 
You can insert your name in there, right? It's funny enough, every time I come out to preach, you can know this. Here's just a little behind the scenes. I always say this. God, if you can speak through a donkey, you can speak through me. And here's the reality. God chooses people like us to carry his message. What does that say about his love? What does that say? How confounding. So he goes to the lowly shepherds, but he also, let's look at another character around in our activity scene. The wise men, or as the Bible refers to them as magi. Now, here's the thing about these guys. You've got them around your nativity scene, but they weren't there at the birth. They came in Jesus' infancy. They came later. But these cats are pretty fascinating. In fact, they first show up 700 years before Christ in the book of Daniel. These, these were the mystics or the philosophers, the astrologists. I mean, these guys were predicting the future. In fact, in the 80s and 90s, they would have had a hotline. I'm pretty convinced, right? Call in. Remember those? You call in, $1.99 a minute or whatever. I never did it, but I'm just saying, okay? Today, they might have had an app. Like, you're, you know, you download, pay a monthly charge, and they, they tell you what's up. All right? Or like an eight ball. You remember those, those eight balls? So, But these, these were these guys. They were, they were kind of speaking, looking to the stars to predict what's going to happen. Because th they thought... Even looking at this world, that this world had too much frailty, it had too much brokenness, too much confusion to offer any real meaning. So they looked at the stars. They, they would be considered today a part of an occult, supervising pagan sacrificial practices at times. And think about this again. And yet, God comes to them. As they're looking for the stars, as they're looking for more, God gives them a sign. He gives them a star, pointing them to Jesus. They're unlikely candidates. Why would you pick pagans? Why would you pick mystics, astrologers, to be a part of the Christmas story? I think it's, I think it's very interesting. It says a lot about Christ's love that that God came both to the uneducated shepherds and the highly educated magi. Because I think what God is saying about his love is his love is for all people. It doesn't matter the level, the socioeconomic level. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your family tree. It doesn't matter how much prominence your name has. You need a savior. Everybody does. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ's love, that his name is above all names, that his, his name is the only hope that we have for humanity, and his love exists for all people. You see, at Christmas, we should be reminded, especially the Christmas story, that this is true, that God's grace cannot be earned. It can only be received. And if you're here and you're like, man, I'm, trying to, I'm running on the treadmill, I'm trying to earn God's grace, I'm trying to do, 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 doing all these things, checking off all your to-do lists. Man, I got I to gotta, I gotta impress God. Listen, you're not going to impress him. You're not going to impress him. You're not going to earn God's grace. All you can do is receive God's grace. You can't earn it. You, you, you may be trying to dismiss God's grace because you think you don't deserve it, and guess what? You do not. But he freely gives it. He freely gives it. Why? 
Why does he give it? Because exactly what Paul says right here. He says, love never ends. God's love for you, listen, God's love for you, some of you need this, his love for you never ends. Satan keeps bringing up things in your past, mistakes that you have made, and here's God's word for you today. His voice is saying to you through Paul's letter here, hey, my love never ends. If Christmas is anything, it's the incarnation of Jesus showing us how much he loves us, how much he pursues us. But here's the thing about the Christmas story, and I want to wrap this series up in this. Here's the thing about this Christmas story. We've got to understand when we see that baby in a manger, we see it dimly. We can't fully get our minds, our hearts, and our souls around the Christmas story. And that's why Paul says this in verse 12, and I want to go back to it. He says this, he says, for now... What he means is on this side of eternity, on earth. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. You see, what Paul is saying here is that on this side of eternity, the way we see things of God, the way we see the Christmas story, the way we see God's love, we see it dimly. We cannot see as God sees. What does that mean? He uses the illustration of a mirror here. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. What does this mean? Well, to add some context to this, in ancient times they didn't have glass mirrors like we had today. They didn't have these clear mirrors that when you look at it you can can see your reflection in detail. They, they, They had mirrors that were made out of polished metal. In fact, the really expensive ones, they would use bronze and they would polish the bronze And you could see your reflection, but you couldn't see all the detail. There was still a distortion to it. You you could see it, you could tell that's you, but but you knew it helped you a little bit, but but there there was still a dimness to it, a distortion to it. And listen, on this side of eternity, because of sin, there's still a distortion to how we see things. We cannot see as God sees. We can't see as he sees, but one day we will. I love what Spurgeon says, and this is super deep, and I get it, so I'm going to say this slow, but I want you to try to take it in. Here's what the great pastor Spurgeon says about this. He says, we couldn't handle this greater knowledge on this side of eternity. If we knew more of our own sinfulness, we might be driven to despair. If we knew more of God's glory, we might die of terror. If we had more understanding, unless we had the equivalent capacity to employ it, we might be filled with conceit and torment and tormented with ambition. But then he goes on. He says, but up there. What does he mean by that? He says, in heaven. With Jesus. But up there, we shall, we shall have our minds and our sh- systems strengthened to receive more without the damage that would come to us here, from overleaping the boundaries of order, supremely appointed and divinely regulated. See, what Spurgeon is saying to us in this, and what Paul is saying, is that when we see the Christmas story, when we see Jesus, when we see 
God's love. We see it dimly. We see it in a way that lacks the clarity that we will have one day in heaven. And so let me say this to you. And this should be encouragement to you. If you're asking the question, and we ask this question a lot, especially around Christmas. Why God? God, why would you do this? God, why, why would you allow this? Here's the answer to I think that's an appropriate question. And here's why, because we see dimly. We do not see as God sees. And you may be saying, God, why haven't you answered my prayers? And Paul's answer to that would be, I don't know. We see dimly. God, God, why would you allow this to happen in my life? I don't know. We see dimly. God, God, why would they, why would they always flourish? And when I look at my family, we're always just trying, trying to keep up. It just feels like we, we can't get ahead. I don't know. We see dimly. God, why would, why would you allow such destruction in this world? I don't know. We see dimly. God, why would you allow loss and death? I don't know. We see dimly. This week was a very difficult week for Bethlehem Church when we found out that one of the most prominent members, really a pillar, of Bethlehem Church, Miss Claire Brown passed away. If you know anything about her, you know, listen, listen, she, she left a legacy. It's going to go way beyond, way beyond her on this earth. The Bethlehem Church would not be where it is today without her. Pastor Jason would tell you that. And why would God allow that to happen? I don't know. We see dimly. But here's what I do know. Miss Claire sees clearly. Your lost loved ones who have gone on to be with Jesus, you know what they would say to you? We see clearly. You can't see as we see. But one day you will. When you see him face to face. So again, what does Paul say to us? He says this. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And he goes on. And this is so powerful. Now I know in part, but then in heaven I shall know fully. And then watch this. This is the part that's so good. And even, even as I have been fully known. So let, let me encourage you, church. What Paul is saying here is if you are a follower of Christ, the way God sees us is he sees us fully known. He sees us not in our sin and not in our depravity. He sees us through his son Jesus. That's why love came down. Because we had no hope. There wasn't just a lack of hope on this earth. There was no hope for eternity. For reestablishing that relationship. So love came down. Love never ends. And when God sees us, he sees us through his son in all its perfection. So let me go back to those characters, Mary and Joseph. 
the shepherds, the wise men, so many others. You see, they didn't see clearly either. They saw dimly. Could Mary possibly, possibly have known all the things? No, she couldn't have. But you know what? She chose faith instead. You see, Scripture says that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And you know what faith does? Faith says even when things are dimly lit, even when I can't see things clearly, I am choosing to trust you, God, knowing that one day I will see as you see, clearly, face to face. Would you bow your heads with me? So I just want to pray, and then we're just going to celebrate and worship. And I love this psalm because it says that there will come a day when every, every knee will bow. There will come a day when in heaven that we stand before our creator fully, fully complete as we have already been fully known because of Jesus. But God, I just also know that right now there are so many who are hurting, especially around Christmas season, the holiday season. So many who would just say, that's me. I, I don't see things clearly. I can't see. I don't understand. And maybe, maybe this is just God's word to you, speaking to you, saying, I know you can't, but one day you will. I know it doesn't make sense, but one day it will. And so, Heavenly Father, God, would you give us grace? Would you give us mercy? And God, I pray, Lord, that the Christmas season, that we will be reminded more than any other time that love came down to rescue us and that you love us more than we could possibly imagine. And even though this world may give up on us, you did not give up on us. And God, we thank you. You are the wonderful counselor. You are the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand? Would you worship with us?